Right, if you have a Bible handy, uh, our main passage today is going to be from Nehemiah chapter 10. Hasn't it been exciting what we've been reading in the book of Nehemiah together? For those of you who are just joining us, the story this far, uh, we have been making our way through the, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, which describes a part of Israel's history which is the beginning of the end of the exile. Uh, at this point in the story, the, the walls of the city have been rebuilt. I mean, previously, under, the, under the, the leadership of Ezra, the priest, the temple is now good to go. And so now the people have come to one mind in a beautiful, very exciting moment of spiritual renewal. And they've asked that they have, would, would be taught the Bible so that they could live the way that they are meant to, as God's covenant people. Uh, we saw uh, when Mike preached a few weeks ago that, that helpful um, diagram, which is on the next slide, um, of a thing which happens when we read the Bible. When we encounter God's word and his, his will for our lives is revealed to us, um, God speaks. He speaks through his word. He shows himself to us. He shows us how life is meant to be. And often one of the first things that happens as a result is sorrow. Sorrow as we realize how far away we are from God's perfect design for life and his will for us. How deeply we must have grieved him with our sin and our, and our waywardness. How corrupt our natures are and how helpless we are without his mercy. But we don't stay in sorrow. The book that God gave is not here to condemn us, but to call us. Following on from sorrow... We are meant to experience the joy of the redeemed because in this book we not only encounter his law but also his grace. That the God who delivered, <laughs> delivered these truths has also himself stooped, has bent, especially now in the New Testament era. We know he has come to reconcile with us, to make it right what we have made wrong. And the joy of the redeemed leads us into obedience, into holiness, as we who have been so rescued turn away from the life that we were previously living and instead turn to serve and to worship God by the way of faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what is happening now in this moment in Israel's history. It, this, this profound moment of spiritual renewal has reached the obedience stage. The people who have encountered God so powerfully, so majestically are now realizing that they are going to need to live differently and in very important and beautiful ways. Um, this period of time, it, it's been going for a little while now. The first thing that the people saw when they opened the word uh, was the need for repentance, and this repentance was widespread. They realized they were meant to be celebrating the festival of booze, and so they went and they did that for a week. And after that week, they have now gathered together again for another solemn assembly. Uh, last week, we read how the priests led the people in a prayer of confession, which called to mind the long-suffering patience of God throughout Israel's history. And we were reminded of his long-suffering patience with us. You have not yet outsinned grace. Very important. The conclusion of that uh, we read at the end of chapter 9, was that the people have put together a kind of covenant renewal letter. They've put together a specific set of 
commitments. It's a formal commitment that the people are making to start obeying various things in the law of Moses that they had been neglecting to live in and to walk in. And so now we turn to chapter 10, which is made up of two parts. Uh, The first part being a list of names of people who signed this covenant. And the second being the content of the commitment itself. We will skip over the list of names, other than to point out that it really is a broad spectrum of people who are described there. Begins with Nehemiah the government, uh, the governor, sorry. It includes the, the Levites, the priests who would be serving in the temple, have, have committed to live in this way. Uh, and then followed by that, there's a, a list of various kinds of lay leaders within the community. Uh, there are names here that have been popping up a few times in the narrative of Nehemiah. We get an insight into some people other than Nehemiah himself who played an important part during this period of renewal. But what you should be seeing, if you skim over that just now, in other words, is that people from all slices of the community are on board with changing the way in which they live so that they would go forwards from this day, walking in the will of God for their lives in a way that they had not previously done. Isn't that one of the accusations that could be made against grace? That if God is going to forgive us without requiring us to do something first, that it will enable us to live in a way that is flippant when it comes to living in the right way? No, grace has the opposite effect. Having been forgiven, having been restored, the people now have a new heart that wants to be, a new heart that desires different things. And if they had that then, we have that more so now in the age of the Spirit. So what is it that these people commit to? Let's have a read. Going from verse 28 of Nehemiah 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. By the way, just, 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 just there, I, I suspect there's an argument that can be made from that one verse about believers' baptism. That, uh, that it's, it's a side note, it's not the most important thing, it's worth mentioning. Um, that here we have whole households are gathering together to, to, to commit themselves to serving the Lord in this way. It's not just the, the adults, it's also their wives, their sons, their daughters. But then that, those people are all summarized as all who have knowledge and understanding. And do we not also read the book of Acts that when households were baptized into the name of Jesus, we can understand that to mean all who have knowledge and understanding, side note aside. We all join with their brothers their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, uh, the Lord our Lord, and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give 
yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions to the fruit of every tree, the, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. It's fun, written in typical Old Testament fashion when you read it out loud. Some of those words start to blend together in your ears, don't they? And yet what we see here is that these commitments are in some way a smattering of things from across the law of Moses that represent some of the big ones that mark out the way in which the people of Israel are distinct from the nations around them. These are all issues of holiness. The law delivered by God through Moses at Sinai was a covenant between Israel and God. A covenant. Do we know what that is? A covenant is a binding promise that creates a new kind of relationship. We don't use the word very often these days. But typically, we still use it in regards to marriage, don't we? And it's utterly appropriate that we do so. In, in marriage, we covenant ourselves to each other through our vows, through our promises. And those vows create a new kind of relationship which is different from the one which existed before. We are bound together under the covenant. If you fail to keep a promise, that's a problem. If you break a covenant, it is a much more significant problem. Through Sinai, God had covenanted himself to Israel. Yes, on the basis of his grace, and yet through a law. But not only had God entered into a covenant, Israel too had made their promises to God in return. 
We read of them in Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, so Moses came, this is at the foot of Sinai, and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And of course, we need to hear the voice of the narrator at that moment saying they did not, in fact, do them. To put it simply, throughout their long history, Israel has not kept covenant faithfulness to their God. They have not obeyed the law delivered at Sinai. They have done all the things that God told them not to do. And they have not done all the things God commanded them to do. And so this letter of recommitment that has been written here in Nehemiah chapter 10, several hundred years after the events at Sinai, reads like a specific list of things which the people have become aware through their encounter with the Bible, we are neglecting. Perhaps like the festival of booths, this list of things are a list of glaringly obvious omissions from their holiness. They are pulling out some specific commands from the law of Moses. All of these things are in there. And they are on this day of celebration and assembly, committing to walk in obedience to these commands. This is the fruit of the joy of the redeemed. The commitments that they are making here can roughly be broken down into three categories. The first commitment concerns marriage. The second commitment is about the Sabbath. And then the largest portion of the letter is about the tithes and the offerings that are for the, the temple service. Now, I'm sure you've realized as we've heard these things that we as Christians are not under the law of Moses. We are, however, covenanted to God in a more ancient way. We are bound to him through faith, which counts for righteousness in the same way as Abraham. We don't keep the law of Moses in the way the Hebrews did. And I suppose you could be forgiven for thinking that as we read that letter, that it has very little to say to us. But that would be untrue. So quite a lot of relevance to how we should live. We just need to do the, the legwork of transposing what we read through Jesus and his finished work and into our present time. But when we do that, what we find is that all of these things very specifically talk about what it looks like for us today, here, now, to walk in faithfulness to the God who has rescued us. Uh, as I was writing the sermon for, for most of this week, the plan was that we were going to look at all three this morning. As of about midnight last night, that plan has changed. Instead, what we are going to do is we are going to spend three weeks, one, one week per theme, 
considering each of these specific calls to holiness. Here's the hope that as we encounter our God and his word, we would give him the opportunity to do for us what he has done for them, to bring about a renewal of, the, of, of our hearts, the heart of worship, which seeks to live for God. So I hope that we here are still encountering this same God who has so blessed the nation under the leadership of Nehemiah, that he would bring new life and restoration and redemption into our walks with him. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. So let's consider what our Lord has to say about the holiness of marriage. The commitment is from verse 30, if you'd like to read it again. The people commit, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or to take their daughters for our sons. Why do they commit to this? We go back again to the time of Moses. When the people stood outside the promised land ready to enter, Moses reminded them of the law delivered at Sinai. And speaking of the Canaanites, he said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Read the next verse. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. These commands aren't about racism. It's got nothing to do with that whatsoever. What was happening at the beginning of Israel's possession of the land was that the people who lived there already, the Canaanites, had been judged by God. The people of Israel inheriting land was both a, a blessing from God for the people of Israel, and at the same time, it was an act of judgment on the Canaanites. The Canaanites had earned themselves the wrath of God specifically for their vile religion. I don't use those words lightly. Modern archaeology has unearthed Canaanite high places in the Holy Land and found the evidences of their practices. Amongst the other things that they were up to, the most egregious was child sacrifice. In order to obtain the blessing of their false gods, they were sacrificing their children. And so, as God's people, rescued from Egypt, are about to enter the promised land as God's agents of divine judgment, they were warned. When you get into the land, don't marry them. Do not intermingle. Do not bind yourselves with these people. Stay away. Keep the separation clear. Because if you don't, you will turn to worship their gods and you will do the things that they do. 
but the Israelites didn't. And then they did. And then they did. They adopted the gods and the practices of the Canaanites before them, which is the very thing which had led to the exile. In 2 Kings chapter 21, we read God's description of the king Manasseh. It says, The Lord said by his servants the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, which, by the way, includes sacrificing one of his children to Baal. Because he has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because the Hebrews failed to follow this very specific command of God. Because they took the people of the land, the Canaanites, in marriage for their sons and for their daughters. The abominable gods of the Canaanites were worshipped throughout the whole history of Israel. These practices... This idolatry, the sin which it caused them to walk in, are given by God as the very specific cause of the exile. And so now here we are in the time of Nehemiah, and get your head around this, they're still doing it. This comes up not only in the letter of Nehemiah, but also in the book of Ezra, who had lived a few generations beforehand. The people are still intermarrying with the other peoples who worship these false gods. The seed of the corruption that had led to their judgment is still alive and well. And so during this period of intense spiritual renewal, the people again promise, first of all the things that they promise, we will stop. We will only marry Within the covenant. We will bind ourselves to those who worship you. And to no one else. Makes sense doesn't it? 
But what does it have to say to us here who have faith in Jesus? We come to the New Testament era and we ask the question, does this still have something to say to us? And the answer is a very loud yes. In Ephesians, we learn that the arrival of Christ has revealed to us some things about marriage which were invisible to those in the time of Nehemiah. We are told that marriage is a mystery, a secret which has now been revealed. Paul quotes Genesis as he explains in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? Paul here is teaching us that marriage has a purpose. It's a purpose which could not possibly have been understood before Christ came onto the pages of history. But now that he has been revealed, along with him, so has this other truth, do you understand? Genesis describes God's view of marriage. One man, one woman, leaving their family of origin, and then joining together in a lifelong covenant, becoming one flesh till death do they part. And now we can see that God designed marriage in this pattern because marriage itself is meant to be a living parable. It's a spiritual reenactment of a precious theme. Marriage was designed by God to be a picture of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. How could they have known that without knowing him? It is as if every married couple on this earth are dancers playing their parts in a divine ballet. And in this dance, the husband has assumed the role of Jesus, who loves his wife by laying down his life for her in order to lead her to God. And the wife is dancing in the role of the church who respects and loves and submits to her husband in glad and willing cooperation. Healthy and happy marriages function like this because that's how they were designed to work by their designer. Right across the New Testament, this imagery of marriage is used again and again and again to describe Jesus' relationship with his church. For example, the second coming and our final union with him is described as a wedding feast. The joy of that occasion is likened to the joy of the bridegroom who finally gets to be with the object of his affection forever. This is how Jesus loves his church. The joy is real. It explains so much about marriage that we would understand that it is a parable. For example, this is why God hates divorce. Why he's so strong on that one in a way that sometimes surprises us. When a married couple divorce, they are taking the God-ordained picture of his love for his church and they are tearing it in half. That is scandalous 
It is slanderous. Because Jesus will never leave his church or change his mind or fall out of love with her. He is still serving her today and ever will right up until the end. I think sometimes in our culture we don't like that, that teaching on divorce. We want to run off to the extreme edge cases and ask questions like, what about in this situation or in that situation? And sure, there is a time and a place to delicately discuss those things. And yet there is also a need for us, is there not, for us to define the centre and the purpose and to sit in how intentionally uncomfortable this can be. When Jesus taught about marriage and what it means through the eyes of God, the apostles responded, if that's true, who would get married? (laughs) Because the commitment is so extreme. And the cost we should be willing to pay in order to maintain that marriage is so high. In our day, marriage is falling on hard times. Increasingly, people aren't taking it seriously because we have separated it from its divine purpose. We have separated marriage activities, kids are in the room today, from marriage itself. Some of you might be familiar with the old marriage ceremony. I believe it was from the the Anglican tradition which near its beginning reminded all who were in attendance that marriage is not to be entered into lightly. Aren't those beautiful words? It's a big commitment. It really matters. So much of our flourishing as a society hangs on healthy marriages and having healthy marriages hangs on our understanding what God has built marriage to be. Ultimately, marriage is about worship. It's a holy institution. It is about drawing near to God and experiencing his love for us. Do you realize how Jesus loves his church? Do you realize how devoted he is to her? The grace that he lavishes upon her so selflessly and so consistently. Do you realize this is his love for you today? And so, because of who God is and how faithful he is to us, in the law of Moses, a restriction was placed on who they could marry. The restriction was placed, uh, it, it was described, sorry, in terms of nationality, but it was never about nationality. It was only ever about worship. It's stated plainly, if you marry them, you will worship their gods. Brothers and sisters, when a a person becomes a Christian, they are reconciled to God through what Jesus has done. They become a new creation, set apart for the Lord's service. This is you, if you're here as a believer today. Your heart and your desires have been transformed into something that they could never possibly be without his work by his spirit within us. You are a different kind of being to the one that you were before you met him. We go from belonging in our heart of hearts to the spiritual principles that govern this fallen world 
And instead, we come to belong to another who has loved us and gave himself for us. The person whom you marry will have more effect on your life than anyone else in the world. They will be the most important person in your world. The parent of your children. And they cannot possibly help you fulfill this picture if they do not belong to him. So often when uh, young people come and and, and speak with us as, as pastors, wrestling with the question of, can I bind myself to this person who does not share my faith? <laughs> yes, we still get asked that question. No human nature hasn't changed. Yes, we wrestle with the exact same things that they were wrestling with in Nehemiah's day. Very common uh, for pastors to take people to that portion of the New Testament which says that it is not good that we as believers would be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. You can make the case from there. It's valid. This is stronger. This has always been God's will for his people. Do not intermarry with the peoples who don't worship me, or you will worship their gods and do what they do. If you're going to live for Jesus, bind yourself to someone who wants to live for Jesus too. The principle stands. This principle speaks to three situations that will be happening in the lives of this congregation. Firstly, it speaks to the unmarried believer. Secondly, it speaks to the believer who is married to an unbeliever. And lastly, it speaks to the believer who is married to a believer. (laughs) Let's consider each of them. To the unmarried, what does this have to say? It says that if you are going to live for Jesus, the only fitting partner for you in marriage is someone who shares your faith. Somebody you can pray with. Somebody who strengthens and reinforces your own faith. You are not the exception to the rule which has been playing itself out across the whole history of God's people. One of the saddest parts of being a pastor, for me at least, is those conversations I have grieving and praying with people who want nothing more than for their spouse to join them and share in the spiritual life which is so precious to them and to come and take part in the life of the church with them when the other spouse simply isn't willing or interested. It's a grief. It's a tragedy every time. And to the unmarried, I say, do not willingly choose that foolishness. How short-sighted. Instead, marry within the faith. Marry someone who loves who you love, who is filled with who you are filled with. Marry within the faith and join in that living parable with a willing partner. It is better to never marry at all than to experience that pain. 
From there, we immediately must come and speak to the believer who is married to someone who does not share your faith. And for you, the word of God has comfort. The teaching of the New Testament for you is clear. I want you to know today that your church grieves with you, that we love you, and we do that because our God grieves with you and he loves you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, make your role in this marriage abundantly clear. You are to remain devoted to your spouse for as long as they will have you. You are to keep your covenant with them in the prayerful hope that by your patient example, they will see the difference which Jesus makes and come to share in your faith. That can be a long road. It's a painful one for a certainty. I cannot promise you with any certainty that that is the end which will come about. But hear us today. You are not alone. God has not abandoned you. His mercies, which are new every day, are for you today. He has not changed his mind. He is near to you, and you are dear to him, and he can sustain you. We join you in praying that the God who brings life in the desert and makes a way where there is none will delight to frustrate the wisdom of the wise and bring this mercy to your family. And so long as it is possible to hope, we will continue to hope and pray with you that he will do this thing. You know, I, I said before that one of the biggest griefs for me as a pastor was, was witnessing those tears of the grieving spouse for whom that desire is unfulfilled. It is a painful thing to see. But there's a precious thing to see. The tears of a believing spouse are precious in the sight of God. Each one of them, an intercessory prayer. And so keep going. Lastly, this passage speaks to us, believers, who are married to believers. And is this not a call to take seriously the holiness of our marriages? To not neglect them or to take them for granted, but to treasure them and to nurture them and to care for them with the same love and care that Jesus has for his church. How precious is marriage? The answer to that question is, it is as precious as the church is to Jesus. So care for it. Don't assume. Don't get busy and forget to love one another. Don't get angry and stay angry. Reconcile today. Show mercy today. Draw near to Jesus today and become the kind of person that you need to be to contribute to that holy dance. It matters. The blessings, <laughs> the blessings of getting this right, how hard are they to summarize? The pain of getting it wrong, so significant. Experience the grace of God as you do marriage in his image. To all of you, 
all three categories of person, we say. Remember the love of Christ. As was true in the days of Nehemiah, where the Israelites came to the conclusion, we've been getting this wrong for a couple of hundred years now. But God had not abandoned them. As you hear these things today, if if any of you realize that when it comes to marriage, I have not been walking in God's will for my life. It is not too late for you to receive his grace and his restoration and his forgiveness, whatever that means for you. If in reading his law, you experience the sorrow of conviction, don't stay there, but instead turn to the joy of the redeemed and the obedience of faith. It is not too late if you are hearing the sound of my voice to turn and be healed and to be new. Let's pray. Our Father, as we picture your your nation assembled before you, seeing the condition of their hearts and of their lives and realizing that they fall short, We grieve with them, for we see the same sins in our own lives and in our own church. Like them, our God, we have not been faithful in the way that you were faithful. Lord, we also hope with them. We see this divinely appointed moment of grace as they, as a community, come to their senses and turn from from what they have been doing, even if it's just for a moment in time, and turn to face you and to receive your word, which is a blessing. Likewise, we ask that you would do this in us, that you would do this restoring, forgiving, gracious thing in our time that you would bring us to a holiness which flows from grace and not from law. Father, we pray for our marriages (coughs) that we would view them in the way in which you have created them to be. That we would understand them (laughs) and in understanding them, understand you Thank you today that Jesus loves his church, that he has loved her, gave himself for her, that she might be presented to God in purity, without spot or blemish or wrinkle, that she flourishes under his patient care. Thank you, Jesus, that we today here who know you have been reconciled to our God by your work alone. Because of what you have done, through what you have done, empowered by what you are doing, would you help us 
to treasure your symbol the way in which you treasure us. Give us healthy marriages, we pray. Raise us up to maturity and to commitment of a kind that this world cannot comprehend. We pray for holy marriages set apart for your service as husbands and wives propel one another towards the throne of grace and raise children in the same way. We pray for the unmarried that you would give them wisdom and an awareness that in you is every one of their needs fulfilled. That marriage isn't a substitute for you. It is the worship of you. That it is not to be entered into lightly. And that when it is entered into, it is by your spirit. Father, we pray for those who are sitting here today and who know that that's just not what they have done in life. That's not how the story has gone. We pray that they would know that they are not condemned because a saviour died and was brought to life again and it is finished. That even in breaking such a holy symbol, your covenant faithfulness does not end. We pray your mercy for them and your restoration and your grace. Would they know that they can leave here clean by the grace which comes through Jesus alone and that the sins of the past do not need to define the future. Father, make us a holy people. Teach us to walk in your ways radically different from the world around us so that instead of us taking on and worshipping their false gods they would see and believe in the name of Jesus do this in our time we pray Amen